Good afternoon and welcome to today's episode of The Crime Shop. I thought today that we would take a step back in time and look at one of the very first cold cases I ever had the opportunity to investigate. I will say that to date, this cold case is very much unsolved. And through the years, I've received dozens of emails and telephone calls from people who claim to have lived in the town that the victim had been murdered in, to people who claim that they're the victim's family members, the victim's surviving adult children. Yet no one has been able to provide any credible information or evidence that would lead the police to the killer. It's really quite sad. And every time you look at a cold case or every time you try to bring it to the light in public, there's always the hope that someone saw something or someone knows something and they will step forward. So today, let's take a step back and take a look at the unsolved murder of J. Potter Mintz. February 23, 1987, Leland, North Carolina. Leland is quite a charming little town. You know, it's best described as a mid-sized city with all the charms and qualities of a small town. So it, it was unusual, particularly back in 1987, to see such a horrific crime scene. On February 23rd, Lorraine Potter, who is Jay's mother, entered her daughter's home at approximately 12 p.m. There she found the door unlocked, which was quite unusual for her daughter. Her grandson, her youngest grandson, was crying she found her daughter, Jay Potter Mintz, lying face down on the floor, her hands bound behind her back, a pillowcase over her head. When her mother removed the pillowcase, she realized that her daughter's throat had been slit so deeply that it nearly severed her head from her body. She had been chaotically stabbed multiple times and had been sexually assaulted. What makes this truly, truly sad is her son, who was at the home, she has two sons, one was four and away visiting his other grandma, her son that was in the home when she was brutally raped and murdered was just one day shy of his second birthday. Now, a couple of things about this case that really are remarkable is that the entire town of Leland showed up in full force. They were willing to submit to polygraphs. They were willing to provide fingerprints, blood samples, whatever they would. They were willing to do everything in their power to assist police eliminate them as suspects so that they could focus on finding the actual killer or killers in this case. A polygraph examiner, Walter House, administered a polygraph on a number of men that Jay knew. And the result, although they would not have been admissible in court, left him with the feeling and the sense that he did not interview her killer. Everyone was remarkably honest. Now, one piece of evidence was left at the crime scene, and that was a newspaper clipping. You see, Jay had been trying to sell a bed. 
she had placed an ad in the local paper, but the first ad never garnered much interest. So she had to place a second ad in the paper and she had utilized her mother's phone number. And that ad was left in the home. Now, it could have been left there by Jay, but it's really highly doubtful. And, you know, it's long been a theory that perhaps the killer left it there to taunt either the police or the surviving family. Now, in the second ad, you know, Jay had, the local paper was letting people run free ads, but she had utilized the free ads. So by the time she ran the second ad, she used her mother's phone number. Her mother went to her deathbed feeling guilty for her daughter's death because at about 9.40 in the morning, she had received a telephone call from a young man who was inquiring about the bed. So she gave him Jay's address. Jay had informed her mother during that telephone conversation that the bed had already been sold. Now, here's what a lot of people don't know. This has never been released by the police or the family. Was the bed in the home at the time of the murder or was it gone? The little boy, Andrew, that was the only witness to the crime. Because of his age, all he could say was mean man hurt mommy. It is quite baffling. And, you know, the police, they had a couple of promising leads back in the 90s. You know, Detective Tony Cummings, who worked this case on and off for several years, and rather tirelessly, I must say, thought he had a promising lead in 1994, a man he watched for over a year or so, a carpenter, who happened to be in Leland at the time of the murder. The carpenter had a few minor run-ins with the law, no felonies, but had beat his wife. This man was in Florida in 1994 and without hesitation gave his DNA to police and was subsequently ruled out. He was innocent. Another important detail to know is that everyone in this town seemed to love Jay. Detectives could not find an enemy or anyone that did not speak well of her. People, she was just well loved. Back in 2014, a man by the name of Dr. Maurice Godwin offered to look at the case. Now, in my first publication of this case, I was not a fan of Dr. Godwin. I believed that he was rather boastful. His claim was that he was going to get into the shoes of the killer and therefore unmask the killer. In fact, even the Huffington Post interviewed him. And I'm all for getting someone to look at the case with fresh eyes. You know, maybe they can see something that the investigators didn't. And I do respect Dr. Godwin's work. What I don't respect about the man is that he's basically making this bold and wild claim that he is somehow approaching the case differently than the investigators would. Therefore, he is more likely to be able to solve the case than any investigators will. This was snipped from Dr. Godwin's website back when I first published this story. 
Detective assumptions are made every day at crime scenes. Often, investigators make presumptions of guilt about a suspect, which thereafter guides the way he or she investigates a case. Godwin Forensic Consultancy can conduct a detailed examination of the crime scene and case files to look for any mental errors and assumptions made by investigators. A myopic view of police often leads to evidence being overlooked and ignored, which could exonerate a defendant. I actually believe that Dr. Godwin honestly believes that bullshit. You know, most good investigators don't ignore evidence. They don't hesitate to interview potential assailants or witnesses good detectives and there are some that are bad i would agree but the majority of police are very serious about doing their job and they do not hesitate to look at every shred of evidence it's part of their training it's what's ingrained into them and to make the accusation here that police have made a mistake somehow is absurd But by February of 2015, Dr. Godwin had been cut off by police from the files. Now, Dr. Godwin insists that the suspect is in the police files and he just needs to run some DNA tests. But when I look back at the polygraph examiner, what I can tell you is that he did not believe that he interviewed the suspect. And I don't believe that the police would have a suspect in those files that didn't undergo a polygraph. They might but it's pretty far-fetched and doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Dr. Godwin, to me, is both arrogant and rather egotistical, and absolutely, he did absolutely nothing different than what investigators had already done. Over a year working this case in his free time, the good doctor couldn't get into the shoes of the killer. As of today, we haven't learned anything from Dr. Godwin that would point detectives in a new direction because Dr. Godwin wants the glory. If he had anything without the benefit of having the DNA, he'd move forward already. So no, as impressive as he comes off, he's not doing anything the police cold case team or FBI agent wouldn't be doing or already do on any given case. So it's important to look at what we know about this case. What do we know? This was a horrific crime scene. Horrific. Parts of it seemed controlled, while other parts of it seemed like a frenzied madness. Something set this killer off. The crime was carefully planned, at least by initial looks, right? The killer knew Jay intimately, which is not to say that she actually knew him. What I mean by that is this person probably watched her for a little bit of time prior to murdering her. The killer was closer to Jay than I believe anyone ever thought. And I believe he was close enough to think that her children would not be home that day and that she would be alone. He took the time to make the appointment to see the bed so that he'd have a reason to approach the home. 
at some point during the commission of the crime, the killer completely lost it. He lost whatever control he walked in there, whether his initial intent was to rape her, maybe sexually assault her and beat her, he lost complete control. And the reason that I believe that is because of the throat slitting and the stabbing. This woman was stabbed multiple times and she was almost decapitated. That is up close and personal. And that is a frenzy killing. Because of all of that, the suspect was quite possibly never on the police radar. And the presence of a child may have been what made him lose it, we don't know. Something does tell me deep down that the killer or killers did not expect a child to be at home that day. This person knew her schedule well enough to feel comfortable scheduling an appointment to see the bed that morning. This is broad daylight. Why that particular morning? Could it be that the children typically weren't at home that day, that particular day of the week? A killer who took all of the props for this crime and knew his schedule didn't just throw darts at the calendar to pick that day of the week. Who is this killer? This was not a random crime. And it most likely was not just some bitter former lover, a guy she wanted to date, or a guy that wanted to date her, that she maybe turned down. This person is quite possibly both an extrovert and an introvert. He can be one or the other on any given day or by his choosing. He is probably charming and well-received. This person throughout his life, though, has had moments of highs and lows, temperament-wise. But only someone who has lived with this person would know that. The crime scene is both controlled and, again, out of control. At one point, it turns completely chaotic. It really lends credible evidence to the idea that this person is mentally unbalanced in a way, perhaps bipolar. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist, so they could have another mental ailment, ailment, but this person has highs and lows. They go from point A to point Z quite quickly. If you look at the crime scene carefully, you could probably find the progression of the controlled to the out of control, then back to cool, calm, and calculating control. That would be the mental timeline of the killer. Because one thing that I will keep going back to is this killer or these killers entered this home in broad daylight. And they were able to leave in broad daylight. A smaller chance does exist that this might be the killer's first kill since so much overkill went into the murder. The excitement of it threw the killer into this overboard high, so to speak. I personally believe that this suspect could be seasoned, however. Maybe not with killing, but a seasoned criminal nonetheless. Now, in my mind, the killer was meant to be in this area at that exact time. 
It's the only way he could have slipped in and out without being noticed. Across the street from Jay's home, a crew of roofers were working on a roof. A flower shop was next door to her home and it was pretty busy and a well-traveled street in front of her home. So if you think about this, and I think about these things a lot, you know, FedEx, UPS, the mailman, they all come at the same time or relatively close to the same time every single day. And you get used to them being there. You get so used to them coming and going that you fail to notice them. You stop noticing. That's what happens when we become less aware because we're so used to seeing them, we just don't notice when they come and go. So whoever did this was probably someone who wouldn't have been out of place in this area at this particular time of the day. But what really strikes me as rather crazy and odd is how someone could manage to get in and out of Jay's home. They would have been covered in blood, covered, multiple stabbings, severing someone's neck. This person would have had blood on them. They also would have been kind of frenzied looking, kind of crazy maybe. But yet they were able to get in and out without anyone noticing. Now, if the killer planned the crime really well, it would be possible to get out of the home without looking frenzied or covered in blood right because the police didn't have any of the weapons at least that they released to the public they didn't say that they did but they could have had the knife my guess is that they didn't maybe he took a change of clothes now why did the killer leave the clipping the newspaper clipping at the scene I don't believe really honestly that he left it on purpose. I think that might have been an accident. I do believe, however, that he, the killer, in fact, left that newspaper clipping just as police do. Whether it was on purpose or accident, I'm not sure. Maybe the killer took it so as to get into the home, which makes me question if the caller was the person who actually murdered her. I have this theory that perhaps Jay sold the bed, but there were two people involved in the crime. I don't know why, it's something in my gut that I think. There's just something about this case that tells me that there were two people and not one in that home. And perhaps the person she sold the bed to was already there with her. And the reason that the phone call came in to her mother was to give that original person an alibi and no one would ever know who the second guy is, right? You understand what I'm suggesting? Is that the first person who showed up to buy the bed was someone who was meant to be seen, while the second person that was there to help in the commission of the crime, no one would have known who that was because no one got his name. He was just simply sent to the home. 
then again, it could have been one killer. What the police should should release is a timeline. Did that bed get sold in fact that day? Or was it a day or two before that? Or was it still in the home? If it was still in the home, you're looking at two killers. Where does that leave us? Well, I don't have the police files. What I can tell you is that more people than originally thought knew of this person. Quite frankly, I doubt that this person or these persons are even on the suspect list. And I believe that they were either dismissed as suspects or because people were so used to seeing him or them in the area that their names never came up. It is possible the DNA might lead to this person's identity. It's also possible that it may not. From what I do understand is that police have so little DNA left in this case that in order for them to utilize it, they have to be absolutely certain, and I'm talking beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have the killer. They cannot just waste DNA. There is so little left. But what I do know is that somebody saw something. You may not think it's important, but somebody saw something. I would encourage my listeners and readers to go to crimeshop.org. Let's talk about this case. Let's get people out there looking at it. Let's talk to survivors that were in the area. Somebody had to have seen something. And together we could give this young woman's sons peace finally. Her mother didn't get it before she died and she went to her deathbed believing that she was the reason her daughter was murdered because she sent someone to her daughter's home. For we know that person maybe changed their mind and never even went. What I do know is given where this young woman lived, somebody saw something and all we need to know is what that was. And that is all for today's episode of The Crime Shop. Stay tuned for more this week.